What's the problem here with nobody sitting in the middle? Did I spit last year and you guys are afraid? I mean, that's what it looks like from down here. It looks like there's a spit-free zone, you know, like there's... I'm like, you got the far left over here. Uh, pastor's all alone on the far right. Uh, I don't know. You guys act like you don't like each other. I'm not sure what that's all about. Um, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be back this year. I think this is the third year. And... Um, Pastor asked me, you know, almost a year ago if I could come back, and I just immediately put it on my calendar, began praying about uh, um, what he wanted me to share with you, and I've prayed all year and, and studied, and uh, what I want to do over the next couple of days, and actually what we're going to do, I'll just tell you up front what we're going to do, is today we're going to look at, at Romans 5, tomorrow we're going to look at Romans 6. Friday morning, we're going to look at Romans 7, 1 through 6, and then Saturday all day, Sunday school, morning service, Sunday evening, unless God changes, uh, we're going to do Romans 8. And you say, well, why? Because I think if you men understood the key principles that are found in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, um, it would change your life, because I think they're foundational to everything else that happens in the scripture. So, um, you know, sometimes I've looked at my notes as I've been preparing them, and, and the other day I was sitting in my office and I was kind of printing them off the computer because, you know, you don't know how long they are until you print them off. And some of them are like eight pages long and worth of notes, but, you know, we're just going to dig in. So I want you to take your Bible and, and be a Berean, study it, we'll reason together, um, and uh, we'll just see where God goes and how much time we have. If you get tired and you need to stand up and walk around, stand up and walk around. Don't, you're not going to hurt my feelings um, uh, as long as you don't boo or something like that, you know. Um, but just do whatever you need to do to, 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 um, to track with it. And if you have questions, you know, we can sit down over a cup of coffee and, and go over stuff. The, this first session, I'm just going to cover two verses. If, well, I'm going to try and cover two verses. And Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, really talks about the theme is peace with God. And, and I thought that, you know, we live in a world that's looking for peace. You know, I heard on the radio um, just in the last week or two that the recession is over. And that's good news. But I think that most people don't, don't exp- haven't experienced it. And I think maybe, uh, maybe that God has allowed our country to come through a difficult financial crisis because he wanted us to see that our God was failing us. You say, you mean God was failing us? No, I say, I mean, our God was failing us. And you're talking about, well, what do you mean, our God? I mean... I mean, our God, God, the gold. And people come to church every Sunday, but their God is gold. And, and it's all, t- the, m- more about what you do in life is based on money than God. So how you decide whether you're going to go to church or not, or 
what you're going to do is based on, on money. Sometimes it's just how much money I have to do, pursue the pleasures that I have. And then our lives are, are void of peace and we can't figure out. And I think God may have just, may have just allowed our country to come through this thing so that we could see what a failure our God is. And it might be something that turns us to the one true God. Because all that the world has to offer us is a subjective peace. That's all the world has is a subjective peace. And everything is tied up into circumstances. So when circumstances are going good, then, then they're good. When circumstances go on downturn, then we're all in crisis. And everybody's in a panic. But, but when you read through the scripture, you have to remember that these were people who lived in tumultuous times. They were going through persecution. They might lose their job, their home. They might be thrown in jail. They might be killed. All for the simple fact that, that they were followers of Jesus. And so we come through and we got a little crisis because we bought houses we couldn't afford. Pursuing our God and our lives are turned upside down. Listen to the insightful words of Augustine. He said, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. So let's just ask the Lord to take us to the place of peace. Let me read verse 1 and 2. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ and through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of of God. Father, I pray that you would speak through your servant. And Lord, just have your way in our hearts. Lord, I don't know what you want to say, but I, I yield myself that you could say whatever you want. And I ask that you would keep me from saying anything that would hinder your working. The Lord, gather us together as men, one in spirit, that we would be in a relentless pursuit of you as you are in a relentless pursuit of us. Lord, stir us and shake us. Lord, grab hold of uh, us and don't let us go. Lord, uh, shake us until we let go of every last thing that hinders the full manifestation of your life. Lord, fill us with this keen sense of your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul starts off the, the words there, if you're, you're reading along, he starts off and he says, therefore, and every time we see therefore in the scripture, you know, it's the old saying, you know, you got to find out what it's there for. But if you go back into Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4, he was laying out the foundation of, of the importance of faith. And he talked about Abraham and and all, all the importance of faith for all who desire a relationship with their creator. And then he says, being justified by faith. Being justified by faith. I look in the New King James, it, says, it adds in, having been justified by faith. Whichever your preference, but it, it, there's no more important truth in the scripture than this one. That we understand we're justified only by faith. Justification by faith is foundational to the, 
to the Christian life. It's the doctrine that brings us security, and it's a doctrine that brings us hope. And justification is the declaration that we are in right standing with God. Now, how many of you ever heard a good old country preacher at the, the brush arbor or a tent meeting yelling and screaming at the, at the brethren that you better get right with God? Nobody's ever heard that? You poor, poor people. It's, it's, a, it's a cultural event, you know? He sit there and he's going, you better get right with God! Brother Abshire knows what I'm talking about in Louisiana. That's just nothing. He's just getting worked up, man. You better get right with God. I love it. You know, spit and slobber, it's all coming around. It makes you feel like there's a true sense that it's there. Now, what, is that, what, is that, what does that mean? You better get right with God. How do you and I, frail human beings, get right with God? Now, usually he's trying to correct some form of bad behavior. He's probably preaching about somebody chewing or, or drinking or smoking or dancing or going with the girls who do, which is nasty when you think about it. Who wants to go with a girl who chews? <laughs> Let that settle in your mind. That'll kind of rob you of your joy. Right? Now, now but, but here's the thing. You know, whenever I hear that, I always say, wow, you better get saved. Because there's only one way to be justified. There's only one way to be made right with God. It's, it's a judicial word that declares that we're not guilty. And not only are we not guilty, but we're acceptable to him. But justification isn't just a, a judicial statement. It includes our restoration and our reconciliation to God. You know, you could look at enough travesties in our own judicial system and someone's declared not guilty and we all go, yeah, but he's guilty. But this is what I want you to understand about justification because sometimes we kind of got this idea, well, yeah, God looks at me as though I, I haven't sinned. But <laughs> we both know I have. But if that's your understanding of justification, let me just try and stretch it a little bit, Okay. Because I remember, oh gosh, you know, way back uh, in a Bible class, someone said, justification is just as if I've never sinned. And I always struggled with it because I knew I had sinned. And maybe that day, not you, none of you have had any troubles with it. Here we go. Justification is not just as if I never sinned. And, and it's just not deep enough. What I want you to think is justification is I have sinned. And I have been declared guilty because you have sinned, have you not? And what are you going to go through, La La Land? Well, I haven't sinned. I mean, God just sees it that way. And, you know, Jesus and me, I haven't sinned, you know, in God's eyes. No, you've sinned in God's eyes. God didn't put any blinders on and say you didn't sin. He says you have sinned and you're guilty. And at the moment that you were about to take the the brunt or the punishment of your sin, Jesus intervenes and takes the, the whole sum of your sin and puts it upon himself. And Corinthians says that he became sin for us. Jesus became sin for us that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. That's justification. Not only that the penalty of sin has been, been taken from me, but that I have been reconciled to my creator. Isn't this good news? 
Some of you look like you ate too much. <laughs> Come on. This is good stuff right here. I'm excited. <laughs> you see that sin, the, the key here in understanding justification is that sin can no longer define you. Don't we do this so? If someone lies, what do we do? We say they're a... And if they steal, they're a... And if they kill, they're a... And what are we doing? We're defining people by their behavior. But do you know what? Jesus doesn't define us by our behavior. Now, you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But once I got saved, you know, I mean... But since you've been saved, would you want to be defined by any of your behavior? Now, maybe some of your behaviors. Am I right? You'd want to be defined by some of them, but there's others you just prefer that they never got mentioned, especially in the area of your thought life. Right? Am I right? Are we tracking? I mean, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. And here's the beauty of justification. He's saying, listen... Because you have been justified in, in, um, in India, one of the ways that justification is translated is, is that you are righteous. I was teaching uh, in, in India a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to one of the students, and they go, you know, but, but it says that we're righteous. And I said, and you are. How can we be righteous? So we've sinned. Justification. Romans 5, 1. Why? Not because of your behavior. Not because of anything that you do or don't do or fail to do or achieve, but because of what Jesus did. The price has been paid in full. So now I want you to take the sum total of your sin. And where is it? Is it upon Jesus or are you still trying to carry that load? Because as long as you try and carry the load of sin, you're trying to do the, the job of God. And there's not a person here who hasn't had some sin since you were a believer. I mean, I, I, I don't make this incredible distinction between before I was saved and after I was saved. I mean, Jesus took care of all of your sin. 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. Did he see all of them? You see, this is an incredible thing when you grab a hold of it, is that Jesus has seen and dealt with the sins that you haven't even committed yet. Now, why is that important? Because he's completely satisfied. Justification takes the place, and it takes place the moment we believe. Being justified by faith is in the aorist participle, meaning it takes it looks back to a fact that has a continuing effect. So what are we looking back to? But we're looking back to the cross. And he says, listen, every moment of every day in this journey that we have walking with the Lord, we're, we're, we're looking back to having been justified, having been found guilty of all kinds of heinous crimes. And Jesus took stepped in and took all of the sin upon us, upon himself. And this is the thing that, that amazes me. The moment you believe God declared you justified or right with him, and he never changes his mind. 
Listen, we live in tumultuous times. We live in times when, you know, people, because the, uh, the, their lives are not focused in, or centered in Jesus, they can change their mind. People, you know, one day they're your friend and the next day they don't want to know you. Right? Depending on your circumstances, sometimes it happens in the, in the relationships that are closest and most important. Someone changes their mind. And you say, yeah, but how do I know? How do I know that I'm going to have this relationship? Because God never changes his mind about you. You see, he went to the cross and he sealed forever and he'll never change his mind. Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham was declared to be a friend of God. When was the last time you looked at yourself as a friend of God? Have you? Why not? Have you been walking around saying, man, you know, I got a friend. I got a friend. You see, I think most of us, we still struggle with this image of God, that God's up there and he's sitting in heaven and he's a little bored because he's, you know, he's tired of playing solitaire on his computer. So he's got a, a big bully stick and he's waiting for us to mess up so he can whoop on us a little bit. Is that God? Is that the God who sent his only begotten son to go to the cross to become sin f- for us? To take your sin and my sin upon himself? So that we could become the very righteousness of God in him? No, he says, listen, he, we're, we become the friend of God. And listen, it changes when the fact that, you know, we're not going around saying, hey, I'm not guilty. I've never sinned. I've never failed. We're not going around delusional. We're saying, listen, we have a friend and his name is Jesus. And Jesus took all of my failures and all of my shame. And he took it upon himself so that I could be in relationship with him. Listen, friend of God, the point we accept what God says It becomes ours. And listen, I want to state this emphatically. You cannot contribute to your own justification. You can't. You say, yeah, but I want to have a part in my own redemption. You you exaggerate your own goodness. You know? He's saying, listen, there was nothing within us that had the capacity or even the, the, the desire before God came seeking us. And he's saying, listen, you can't contribute to it. It's only spiritual pride that causes sinful men to think he can do something to make himself acceptable or pleasing to God. Abraham didn't earn friendship. He received right standing with God by faith. Listen, on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the complete wrath of God for all those who are in him. Now, we could talk about eschatology, but we don't have time. And there will be a time when the wrath of God is poured out on man. But how come I, you ask, why do I believe that, that there's just no way the church is a part of the tribulation? And it's summed up right here. 
Because Jesus took the wrath of God for us. And in the tribulation period, the wrath is going to be poured out on the unbelieving world. At least that's how I see it. Are you justified? Have you entered into a relationship with God? Will you look at him as a friend? What, how, do you, how do you treat a friend? How do you respond to friends? Nothing? You know, never experienced it? So, <laughs> Come on, work with me here a little bit. Everybody had too much chili cheeseburgers. And, uh, <laughs> I'm always happy to see my friends. Happy to see your friends? Don't, don't any of you call your friends? Yeah, I mean... You have a bad day, wife says you're ugly and overweight, puts you on a diet, <clears throat> call your friend, you know, um, you know, whatever happens, you know, what is if the friend is there to console, to encourage, sometimes to admonish, and he's saying, listen, that's God. We have so many substitutes for that we don't appreciate the fact that he calls us friend. And then he says in the next thing, having been justified, look at, by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. There's no way to separate our justification from our peace. So you say, well, why'd you start off with justification? Because if you aren't justified, you're not at peace. If you're here this afternoon and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you never said yes to him, You're not at peace with God. Yeah, but I'm a pretty good person. Well, no, you're not. You know, where do we get that idea? Do they, you know, you knock on a door and someone says, you know, do you know for sure if you're going to heaven? And I remember, man, people would say to me all the time, all the time, they'd say, oh, I'm pretty good. Liar, liar, liar. (laughs) You are not pretty good. In, and when, since when did we think pretty good was the standard? Here's the deal. He's saying, listen, you were wicked. You were an enemy of God in your heart and in your mind. But I took all of that sin. I took everything that you deserve so that you could be at peace with God. Really, this is a, a military metaphor. So if you find yourself restless and seeking peace, this passage is for you. So he says, since we have been justified by faith, the result is that we have peace with God. How do we have peace with God? God has nothing against us. He's holding no grudges. How many of you had a a friendship with somebody and um, something went wrong? They did something, they said something, they wounded you. And, and you, you have a grudge. You have a, there's an obstacle in your heart. It can happen in a, a marriage relationship. It can happen in any kind of relationship. And until you can pretend like nothing's wrong, but you know something's wrong. And when, when you get like that, doesn't everything kind of amplify in a way it irritates you? Why? Because you're really upset about something completely different. 
And sometimes we have this idea that God is somehow maybe a little irritated with us. Now, now when, when Jesus convicts us, he does it as an expression of his love because he desires what's good for us. But when Jesus went to the cross, he satisfied God in such a way that we could be at peace with God. God has nothing against us. As we think of our lives and our relationship with God, if we really believe that God justifies the ungodly, then we have peace with God. But now I want to share with you, I think, an important truth. True peace comes only when we surrender. Now, despite the current political climate, you can't talk people into peace. All of history proves it. I watched a movie the other day on TV, and usually when I start watching something on TV, I fall asleep, so I might get my facts right or wrong. It depends. But there was a guy about this. He's, a, he's like a U.S. Marshal, and he's chasing some guy down, and I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're in there, and they're getting all the bad guys, and the bad guy's got one of the other marshals, and the, the head marshal ends up shooting the guy, and the other marshal was kind of upset with them. And... He was like, you know, you think I should have negotiated, huh? And he whispers in the guy's ear, I don't negotiate. I thought it was pretty classic. Loved it. If you're against watching TV, I'm sorry. (laughs) But you got to admit, that's a good line. I don't negotiate. But somehow we got it in our minds that God negotiates. You are negotiating with God and you have no peace. And this is why you're negotiating and God doesn't negotiate. What does God want from you? What does God want from you and what does he want from me? He wants unconditional surrender. In World War II, um, both my parents were in the Navy uh, we were fighting, they were in the Pacific, um, fighting J- Japan. Did we negotiate with Japan? Or did they require unconditional surrender? Did the same thing with Germany. Why? Because the only way to have true and lasting peace was for there to be unconditional surrender. You see, friends, the only way that you and I, walking day by day and moment by moment through this journey we call life, as followers of Jesus, is for us to come to the place where we have absolute and unconditional surrender. But we're kind of wanting to negotiate. We're saying, yeah, okay, Lord, I'll do this if you'll do this for me. And then we don't have peace in our lives. And so turmoil and recessions come into our lives and, and everything's kind of turned upside down. But he's saying, listen, I want you to have peace with me. But we have troubles and maybe we have health issues. And we start to negotiate with God, but God's whispering into our ears, I don't negotiate. What does he require? Unconditional surrender. See, I don't know what you're struggling with. It may be a sin issue. It may be a relationship issue. I don't know what each one of you are struggling with. I assume that you're struggling with something. 
But this is what God, listen to him whisper into your ear. I don't negotiate. And what does God want? He wants your unconditional surrender. He wants you to say, Lord, as I look at the cross, I see a friend who was willing to take the sum total of my sin when I was his enemy and take it upon himself and declare me to be right with him, not because of anything I have done or have not done, but he declares me righteous, having paid in full the price that I was due to pay. You see, we may not see ourselves at war with God, but the reality is that all of us were on the side of sin and at war with God. And even if we didn't think about it consciously, we were enemies. Now we say, well, listen, but I put my faith in Jesus. And he's saying, listen, now surrender. America is, I think, like a rights culture. You know what I mean? Americans, like, they're totally into their rights. You can't violate my rights, even if I'm a criminal. Criminals have rights, you know. Terrorists have rights. Everybody has rights. Uh, my dog has rights, you know. Um, my dog has more rights than I do in the house sometimes, you know. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody has rights, and if somebody messes with somebody's rights, you know, they're pretty upset. But this is what Jesus is saying. Give up your rights. Because it's key to having peace. How many of you have the right to be right? None of you have ever had an argument with your spouse. Over, I mean, and forget what you were arguing about. It was really because you wanted to make sure you, that she knew that you were right. No? Some of you never, never argue with your wife? What would happen if you gave up the right to be right? If I gave up the right to be right with that woman, she'd take advantage of me. But God doesn't negotiate. Would you give up the right to be right? Would you give up all of your rights so that you could experience what it means to walk in justification, to be at peace with God? Because... Even though our sins have been dealt with, very very often we walk and we kind of battle with God over who's going to be on the throne. Over how our work situation, and you know, maybe we argue with him about our work or our finances or our kids or the economy or whatever. We are negotiating with him and he's trying to get us to hear as he whispers in our voice, I don't negotiate. Give up your rights because there's room for the, on the throne for only one. You realize, friends, that sin is the obstacle to peace. There's no peace with God until the obstacle is removed, and that's what God did. I, I plead with people to get this right because we come, we've become such a sin-centric people. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, we become so focused on sin. And even those of us who have been made right with God and have been forgiven, we get so focused on our sin. So who wants to volunteer what sin they struggle with the most? Why is everybody... Okay, what, what do you struggle with the most? Thought life. Thought life. Nobody else here understands what you're talking about, so I'll, I'll explain it to them. Right? You have thoughts. And, and Do you think you guys remember Dennis Bryant? Do you guys know Dennis Bryant? 
this is this true story, the Dennis Bryant story. Dennis Bryant and I, we were we were good brothers, and um, <clears throat> we're soul winning partners. We we did it all together, man. We killed many a buffet together. One day I came to Dennis and I said, Dennis, I don't know what's going on, but I've been having my devotions, and every morning, like I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying, and right in the middle of my prayers, I'll just have the most wicked, carnal, sensual thoughts just pop into my mind. He looks at me, and I thought, oh, no, he's going to blow me away, you know. He's like, really? I thought I was the only one. (laughs) Now, I'm sure none of you have had that experience. What happens if you focus on not wanting to have a certain thought? No, I'm serious. I'm serious. You, you see some very beautiful woman sensually dressed, and you, you look at it, and your first thought is, don't look at that. Don't look at that. Don't, don't look at that. What are you doing? Looking at it. And feeling guilty and shame. But listen, the problem is you're, you're still focused on your sin. Or the lure of sin. Maybe the, the temptation isn't even sin. Satan throws it out there and says, here, bite on this. And, and we become so sin-centric. But let me ask you, what would happen if we as a justified people who are no longer under the power and the penalty of sin put our eyes not on what we didn't want to look at or think about and put our eyes and gaze straight into the eyes of Jesus? What would happen if we became not a sin-centric people, but a Christ-centric people? Why? Because we're justified. Why? Because even if we failed, our sin cannot hold us or define us. And I know this by experience, and I think you will too if you'll try it, is that you cannot lust or covet while you're staring into the eyes of Jesus. And you say, how can we do that? Because, you see, if you're living under the law, a law system where you justify, you're a part of your own justification, then you have to be a sin-centric people because you're all focused on the offerings and the sacrifices and all of the things that you have to do to kind of make some kind of atonement. But when you realize that Jesus completely set you free and liberated you, then you are at peace with God. You realize, friends, that God was completely satisfied with Christ's sacrifice, so our sin is never going to be an issue again? How many of you have failed miserably in your life? Okay. A lot of honest people and a few liars, right? right? We've, we've all failed. Haven't we? I mean, just, it's just honest. We, we've all disappointed ourselves. But do you think we've ever disappointed God in that sense? Like we did something that surprised him? Think about it. We do things, that, I mean, I've done things that surprised me. Like, whoa, heck no, how could you do something that stupid? <laughs> but do you think I've ever done anything that God shook his head and said, whoa, heck no, how could you do something that stupid? No. Because God never had the same level of confidence in me that I did. 
He had confidence in one person, his son. And Jesus so fully satisfied. Now, he's done some things like, oh, son, why are you doing that? But nothing that shocked him or surprised him because he never had any confidence in in me to begin with. It's just religion that gets us thinking that we can do something and pull something off for God. But when we realize it's not about religion, but it's this wonderful relationship and he lives his life through us, then we can live at peace with God. So we're at peace because God in all of his holiness is at rest, completely satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. The cross is really the only true peace symbol. It's the only thing that can overcome all of the obstacles. When we, our sins separated us from God, he came in pursuit of us and he paid the price. We couldn't pay so we could be at peace. And that's some kind of awesome love that he has for us. Peace with God isn't a subjective feeling, but an objective reality. We must be centered on the objective truth. We're at peace with God. Not because of anything that we do or how we feel, but because we've been justified by faith. And let that truth reign in our thinking. Let it reign, let it rule in our thinking. Corinthians, he said, Paul told them, he said, listen, bring every thought into captivity to the conformity of Christ. We've got to replace the thinking that, that makes us sin-centric people to make us to to be a Christ-centric people, to think on the things that are honoring and pleasing to him. Peace isn't a feeling, but it's a person. It's Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. For he himself is our peace. Peace. Have you been wondering if God is after you? If he's punishing you, if he's trying to get you? He's saying, listen, be at peace because you've been justified. It's more than the feeling. It's bound up in the person of Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. And so he has delivered us up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Justification is through Jesus, our Lord. We have no merit before God ourselves. We stand before him justified by his grace and his grace alone. And because of that, there's no fear. I saw a sign like that. A bunch of kids were doing this skateboarding. You know, this kind of extreme skateboarding. They're going down in a pool. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It had all this sign that says, no fear. I don't think that's no fear. I think that's just plain stupid. Have you ever seen it? I mean, it's pretty... Uh, I, I couldn't get on the board. I, I'm full of fear. I've got to be honest with you. Skateboard, not me. But how do we walk where there's no fear? Because we have peace with God removes the fear of God. Listen, I'm not talking about not having... a a proper reverence of God. We should never lose the fear of God in the sense where we have a reverence for him. Because we never forget, even though he calls us friend, even though he calls us his beloved children, even though we call him Abba, 
We always, we never lose sight of the fact that he is God. I mean, when you think about it, we sometimes we can get a, a kind of a glib approach and think, well, you know, hey, buddy, how's it going? But you look in the scripture. Anyone who came into the presence of God, the first response was to fall on their face. Why? Because we're going to be overwhelmed by his holiness. It doesn't mean that we're not friends. It doesn't mean that we're not at peace with him. It simply means that he's God and we're not. And so we never lose that, but we are no longer at war with God. The fear of God is the heavenly policeman trying to catch us doing wrong or or as God, the forbidding judge, ready to hand down the heavy sentence. All of that is gone. God is no longer policeman or judge, but he's father. He's our true, tender-hearted, loving, compassionate father. He does discipline us, but even in his discipline, what is he doing it for? You know, he's disciplining us for our good. Now, you know, when you have children, especially when they're little and they're, they're time intensive in the area of discipline, sometimes you discipline them because you're frustrated. Isn't that true? You know, my dad said it a couple of times, man. Uh, you know, that whole, you know, this is going to hurt me more than you. I'm like, no, it's not. Ain't going to hurt you at all, man. Uh, right? But me, with my kids, I was just honest with them. I was like, you know, this is going to hurt you a whole lot more than it's going to hurt me. <laughs> and if you talk back to your mother, it's going to hurt you double. You know what I'm saying? Do we understand each other? Because this isn't going to bother me a bit. <laughs> Might as well be honest with them. They know you're lying the other way, you know. But here, here's the deal. <laughs> well, you guys have little kids, right? Yeah, I mean, don't tell them stories. Don't try and make it spiritual. We, we, we do it because we're frustrated. But God, because of the cross, think about this, because of the cross, because we've been justified, he's no longer frustrated. But he has a predetermined, predestined plan that we're going to be conformed to his image. And yes, he will chastise us and discipline us as a loving father disciplines his son, always for the benefit of the son. And he's always, he tells us that we have peace with God and it removes the fear of death. Every once in a while, I'll meet someone there and just kind of afraid to die. In, in, in my life, I'm always kind of in these situations where either through travel or through people who are hostile to the gospel. It seems like in the last year in India, we've had more people, more violence towards the gospel. And uh, it seems to ever increase. And people will ask me, well, are you afraid of dying? I'm like, dying? Afraid? Are you kidding me? Death is no threat to the believer. I'm not looking to die. I want to see my girls get married. I want to have some more grandkids. I mean, I want to, I want to mess up my kids' life. <laughs> Spoil the grandkids. I want to have all of that fun. But fear of death? Why? Why? Because, you see, you don't have to fear it because you know that you've been justified. You know that you have peace. If you don't understand this principle, you will be full of all kinds of anxiety. Listen, we recognize that we're three-part beings. We're spirits who have a soul 
and we live in a body, and who we are is not this body. Our spirit has been completely redeemed. Death, it can't die. It just has a new relationship to this old body. And this old body, in this what a friend of mine calls this old earth suit of ours, is going to fall off and decay, and we're going to enter into glory. And so we don't fear death, but we have peace with God, and it satisfies all the accusations. Now, how many of you are married? Okay, if you're not married and never been married, you're not going to understand this one. And my wife is not allowed to get a copy of this tape. (laughs) (laughs) Women can remember everything men do wrong. I don't mean some of the things. They can remember in detail things that you did before you were born. (laughs) Or at least since you were dating. Now, my wife is pretty good, yeah. But I mean, she has brought up in storytelling some things that I did when we were dating over 30 years ago. I'm like, I have no recollection. And she'll say, no, you did, and you did. And, and the reason is, is, is everything with a woman is seared to their emotions. There's an emotion that's attached to an event, and so they can remember it. And the reason men cannot remember it is because they don't. Am I right? Don't care. Don't tell them that. Now, if God is like my wife and can remember everything that I ever did wrong, when we get to heaven, it is going to be a gruesome event. But that's why God never comes and pictures himself verbally in the English language as a woman, but as a father. And he's saying, listen, you're at peace. You've been justified. You've been made right. There are no accusations. The only one who accuses is the enemy, and he's a liar. Now, you say he's a liar, but sometimes he reminds me of the things that are true. Right? He's a liar. Why? Because they've been paid in full. So I want you to take in your mind, I want you to take every fault, every sin, every failure, everything that you're ashamed of, and pile it all together in in an imaginary bag, stuff that thing as full as you need, get as big a bag as you need. Tie that thing up and write on it. Paid in full. You see, we're in a spiritual battle. And the enemy throws his fiery darts of doubt and accusation. And how do we answer these doubts and accusations? Because they seem real. And some of them we've experienced. And the the enemy tempts us. And then he accuses us for giving in to the temptation that he tempted us with. 
I, I picture it like this. Satan's like, you know, he jumps on one shoulder, you know, and he whispers in your ear and he puts a, a thought of, of lust or covetousness in your mind. And it comes into your mind. And you're like, where, where did that come from? And then he jumps over to the other shoulder and he whispers in the other ear and he says, how could you call yourself a Christian and have thoughts like that? You never felt like that? Everyone I know that I've talked to about this has felt that way. Who is it? Is it God? It's the enemy who wants you to be focused on what? You, your sins, and your failures. Do you think the enemy cares that if you're all consumed with your failures? Why do we attribute that to God? That God would somehow want us to be focused on all of our failures, all of our sins, and live in shame when he went to the cross to pay the price in, in, in total. Let me just take a second and explain it this way. The Holy Spirit is very different. The Holy Spirit will convict you of wrong or sinful attitudes and actions, but he will never condemn you. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit will say, Jeff, <laughs> why don't pick on me? Uh, Jeff, those thoughts, they don't represent who I made you to be. That's not who you are. The devil will say, Jeff, you no good, lousy scoundrel. How in the world could you have thoughts like that and call yourself a Christian? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Even, how do you even go to church? I don't know, you hypocrite. And he beats the snot out of you. But Jesus isn't in the business of beating us up. He's saying, now listen, you were focused on things you shouldn't have been focused on. And that's not who you are. What's the difference? One operates from the place of that the price has been paid in full. And the other is seeking to get us focused on the sin that we despise. You see, peace with God, it satisfies all of the accusations. Remember who we are in Christ. And when we don't have peace, the way to get a sense of peace back is by reminding ourselves of the justification we have in Christ by faith. We need only remind ourselves that we are made right with God, not by our own actions. How are we made right with God? But through the finished work of Jesus. Remind yourself that your standing with God does not depend upon you, but him. Because there's a point in all of our lives where we start to think, listen, it depends on me. But does it depend on you? Or does the scripture say that your standing with God depends on Jesus and your trust of him? What pleases God? What pleases God? The scripture says that faith pleases God. And then the, if you look in your scripture, he says, and being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, I underlined it in my, my scripture, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Now, here's another wonderful truth. Because uh, you guys know, I mean, I've shared with you many times before that I, I grew up Catholic. So 
no matter how how old I am, I, you still can't get rid of some of that Catholic indoctrination. It's like it's in there. It's spread into you, you know. And <clears throat> a Catholic can have no access with God. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not picking on a Catholic. I'm just saying a Catholic doesn't even think about having access with God. You have a priest who's your intermediary. You have nuns who are there to torment you as a child. I mean, you have all kinds of things, but you don't even want to get close to God because God would kill you. Where do they get that? From Judaism. The, uh, the Jews had no concept of what it meant to have access to God because everything in the Jewish system was built to show them they had no access with God. Even Aaron or the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And even then he had to make an offering for himself and he had to have a rope tied to his ankle and bells on his, on his garment so that if God were to strike him, they could pull him out and not everyone would be destroyed. That what was the purpose of the veil was all there to show that you can't get to God. And the whole law system and the whole problem with legalism, even if it's under a Christian version of legalism, is that it destroys what Jesus has done for us in justifying him. And he says here in verse number two, he says, by whom? Who's that? Jesus. Also, we have access by faith into this grace. Listen, you with all of your failures, with all of your weakness, with all of the foibles, all of the problems that you have, God, in his sovereign will, has justified you, put you at peace with him, and listen, he's given you access. You know, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not very much a political person after spending two decades in Asia. I don't have any confidence in any American politician. I don't have confidence in the Republican Party, and I don't have confidence in the Democrats. And so I think it's a mistake that Christians kind of put their arms and kissy face with the Republicans all the time because I think they're a bunch of scoundrels too. I'm not, you know, I'm just, just distrusting of politicians. But, you know, it might be cool to meet the president. You know, I mean, it'd be a trip. I don't know what I'd say. I'd probably say, you know, listen, we need to have a come to Jesus talk. I mean, he does. You, you know, you need to pray for that. He needs to get saved, man. I listen to what he talks about. He doesn't know. I'm not trying to be mean. Listen to him. He just doesn't know. You listen to what his pastor was preaching every Sunday? He didn't hear the gospel. He heard liberation. But he's talking about some kind of a civil, judicial liberation. He didn't hear anything about how he could be freed forever. But it might, you know, to have that kind of access, I mean, hey, there's some power there. You know, I'm just glad that Pastor Smith takes my phone calls. Because I'm a missionary, and the only reason a missionary calls is because he wants money. Right? Am I right? I'm right. Now, he to me not always, I don't always ask for money, but he knows when the phone rings and, you know, it's Brother Eckno. He's like, oh, no, you know, the guy want, he wants money. Of course he wants money. He's trying to do the work of the kingdom, you know. But... But, you know, I got a little bit of access. Pastor Smith will take my calls until maybe this week is over, and then maybe that'll change. But, you know, access with important people is good. Have you stopped to think about you and the access that you have? I mean, you come here, look, look at me like you're bored, you know? You... I don't even know you that well, and I'm surprised. 
You have access to the creator and sustainer of all things. You ought to be all jazzed up. I mean, listen, I, I, you know, you can call Diane Feinstein and get a, you know, get her on the phone. Well, whoop-dee-doo. I mean, if you don't know God, maybe that's something to be excited about. She needs to come to Jesus talk too. I'm not even talking about left, right. I'm just talking that they need a little come to Jesus talk. But listen, that's not the kind of access that's really impressive. He said, listen, first you have been justified. Now you have peace. And then he's saying, listen, and you, us, a bunch of nobodies, <coughs> have access to God. He says, and he actually uses the word, and we have access to this grace. And never forget, grace is not a theological principle. Grace is a person. You want to talk about grace, you want to talk about love, you want to talk about joy, it's a person. That's some abstract theological concept. It's Jesus. But he's saying, listen, when you need grace, you have access to it. And life throws you all kinds of curveballs, friends. It throws you all kinds of Difficult situations, and he's saying, you have access. By faith into this grace, wherein we stand. An interesting thing, you look in the tabernacle, you look in the temple, there's never any chairs. But Jesus is always sitting when it comes to the finished work. Why is he sitting? Because he said it was finished. And when he said it was finished, he was serious. But who, who sits with him? In Ephesians, he says that you are now seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, you said, no, I'm not here at Mount Gilead. No, he's saying, well, you're here physically, but your spirit is where? It's at the right hand of the Father, seated in him. I don't understand that whole concept. But I know that you have this access to God. And I know that he says here that we can stand. And so here's life. And life economically, the last year or two, it's kind of like a, a hurricane has come into California. And it's blowing and it's testing you. But let it, let it be this I can stand. Not in my own power. God brings trials, tribulations. Maybe you have teenagers and the teenagers start running from God. And you say, How can I stand this pain, this pressure, this worry, this fear? Let me tell you, he said, you can stand. How do you stand? Because you have been justified, because you have peace with God, because you're at peace with God. You have access to this creator and sustainer of all things, and you can stand in his grace. Because it's not you, but him who lives within you. And then he says, and rejoice in hope. Of the glory of God. Now, we're almost done. Can I get any amen? <laughs> Somebody wants to say amen to that? We're almost done. Sweetest words we heard all morning or all afternoon. Here, here it is. Where's your focus? Are you thinking worldly or heavenly? 
Sometimes I catch myself focused totally on the worldly circumstances that I'm dealing with. Do you ever catch yourself there? I mean, I'm always dealing with people. And people can be quite disappointing. I mean, people can just be a pain. I always used to wonder about there's a statement that, you know, old preachers say, you know, ministry would be great if it weren't for people. But it wouldn't be ministry if it weren't for people. You know, you can focus on, on, on things and circumstances. You can focus on your checkbook and maybe get depressed. You can focus on your earthly circumstances and feel overwhelmed. But here he says now, rejoice in hope. Hope isn't wishing. Hope is based upon the confidence of the promises of God. And I just want to encourage you. Have the earthly circumstances got you focused on the things of the earth and forgotten and brought you to the place where you've forgotten who you have access to in this great grace? Because we need to be a people who rejoice in hope. Where the first words out of our mouth are, oh man, this economy. Like somehow God was suffering a recession. God doesn't have recessions. We do, but we rejoice in hope of the glory of God because everything about us should be seeking to bring glory to him. So let's just review. Therefore, being justified by faith, isn't that awesome? It's not simply that you haven't sinned. Because you have. It's that you sinned, you were declared guilty, and you were sentenced to death. And Jesus stepped in and took what you deserved upon himself. So that you could be declared righteous. He became sin for us. So that we could be the very righteousness of God. In him. I don't get that. I accept it by faith. But experientially, it's fairly hard. But God looks at me and he says, There's Tim Ekno, the righteous. Are we a sin centric or are we a Christ centric people? Because it has everything to do with what comes behind. Because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith. And faith means you take the step to make the call to the one in authority, the one who can influence, the one who can move and stir. Because we have faith, access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And so our resolve is men who stand in difficult times. Stand in the power of his grace and in the presence of his life. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So let's not be like this. Mumble, grumble, mumble, grumble. How hard it is. How difficult it is. Let's say, hmm. You know what? I stand free from accusation. 
And God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to remember no more. Amen. Father, I pray that you would just take the words of your scripture, just plow them into our hearts and minds. Lord, that we might have a tenderness to you, be yielded and sensitive to you, speak and convict us. Lord, in these areas where we yield, where we feel so tempted, help us to remember who you made us to be. Lord, to think that you've justified us is just such an awesome and overwhelming thought. That we could be right with you and have access with you and that we can stand in you and glory in you. Lord, let it be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.